Yeah, I saw I saw it's like some top ten list, which I, I mean I think that the the people pointing out Luke one thirty seven, I think that does work. Yeah. But the way they said it, it's like Luke and then the thirty seven, and since there's one Luke, it's pointing to Luke chapter one verse thirty seven. I was like, well, it's like reading Augustine. Whereas again. two Luke's would be <laughs> <It's>, chapter two. <laughs> exactly. Oh exactly. <laughs> or maybe it'll be eleven. Or eleven. Yeah. I don't know, because one in one. We're getting into one. some numerology <laughs> yeah. here. What does all this mean? Yeah. I I hope we never talk about numerology. I have nothing to say. Uh, okay, are we ready, the though? Plenty to count. I... <laughs> That's bad. That's really bad. <laughs> My gosh, Mike. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Father's Movies. I'm Vito. I'm Mike. And I'm Jesse. And we are the Dad Fathers coming at you with some cool hand energy. Ooh, cool hand energy. That's one of the best ones we've had so far. (laughs) Uh, This week, we are discussing Cool Hand Luke. And with us to help discuss this is Aaron from the Subtext Podcast. Aaron, how are you tonight? I'm great. Thank you guys so much for having me. Are you cool? Are I'm, you cool you tonight? Know, I am. I am pretty steamy. I am sitting next to my radiator, and it just won't quit. <laughs> this apartment is very old. <laughs> nice, nice. You got to open your window you know. to the winter air to make sure everything stays the same temperature. <laughs> it's a delicate balance. It's perfect. Well, uh, we we're having you on here, Aaron, to talk about Cool Hand Luke from 1967, uh, and kind of. This is a part of our Misfits and Outcasts and Loners series. We decided to kind of cap it all off with one of the fathers of the Misfit and Outcast, the anti-hero, if you will, kind of genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe to come into this, we can talk a little bit about who made it. Uh, this isn't like some of our other episodes where we have such a long, drawn-out list of people because every Hollywood movie nowadays has to have at least five actors that have been nominated for an Academy Award above the title. It's kind of nice we don't have that here. (laughs) It's less exhausting to talk about anyway. But this is coming to us from uh, Stuart Rosenberg, who previously was not known for much. He directed some TV episodes and has two feature films to his credit, neither of which I've ever heard of. Uh, But afterwards, he brought us movies like WUSA, Pocket Money, and The Drowning Pool, all of which starred Paul Newman, which is the only reason I'm mentioning them. I don't. Has anyone ever heard of these? These. I've heard of the Drowning Pool, but I have not seen it. No. Are, are you th- hmm. okay? No, nothing from anyone else. No. That's weird. I, I was hoping that someone would be able to pick <laughs> up on that because after that, he has the one that we all know, which is the Amityville Horror. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows the Amityville Horror, uh, and then the Pope of Greenwich Village, which I've heard talked about in some places. But Stuart Rosenberg, not really a big name. Kind of surprising no. that uh, he makes like an all-time classic and then dips for the rest of his career. Yeah. Um, Apex Mountain. Apex Mountain using yeah. the ringer, yeah. ringer parlance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <exactly. laughs> I feel like cl- clearest example of it. Mm-hmm. But then this movie stars Paul Newman. He's the man, the legend. He's nominated for best actor for his role here, but he's been nominated a total of 10 times at the Oscars, nine times for best really? actor and one time for best supporting. Yeah. Yeah. He's he just got nominated all the time. He was like Meryl Streep, uh, but won a lot less. <laughs> Um, he, he, he <laughs> only that's won a, once, That's right? a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> he did win only once for Color of Money. It's a good movie. It is. It's it, kind of weird that that's the one he wins for. I think that's classic, like, Oscar makeup time. Yeah. 
Like this guy's been like, around a long time, and he's amazing. Mm-hmm. And Here's this for your career. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and he actually yeah. did even get an honorary award further on in his career as like well, a lifetime achievement or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the cool. same. I think the same year that he was nominated for best picture for the movie, he also directed Rachel. Rachel. Okay. Which I've also never heard of. Um, I'm sure there's some classic film buff out there that's like screaming at the pod. <laughs> How do you not know about Paul Newman's career? But I really don't. Not when it comes to his directing. Rachel. Rachel's was, not bad. Oh, I, it I've is? seen oh. it. Yeah. What's it about? I don't remember. But is I, that I remember someone named I, Rachel? <laughs> Please tell me. Yeah, tell I guess me. so. Is it about um, like two people named Rachel? Let me, hold on. Refresh <laughs> yeah. my memory and I'll try to tell you. <laughs> I'd be really um, disappointed if it wasn't. We're getting the secretaries I don't know this. if it's as bad as Melinda and Melinda, but it might be. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, I, I mean, I know it's a Joanne Woodward movie and it, it's actually not a bad... I mean, I think Newman as a director is kind of interesting. I'm sort of interested in, like, I think George Clooney is a surprisingly good director. You know, Kevin Kevin Costner had his moment in the sun. His moment but, in the sun uh, lasted approximately 15 hours per film. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, he knew how to milk it. but um, That's true. No, but I, I don't know. It's th- these guys that are kind of like these, you know, known for being these manly or even kind of like beautiful manly guys uh then going in and and doing a directorial debut is always a little bit interesting to me to see like what what they would do if they were at the helm um but it had a really good cast i know it had woodward of course and like estelle parsons um oh, okay and i don't remember i remember it was like sad i yeah. um oh, okay yeah it was nominated for best picture so that would fit yeah. Yeah. It has to be sad. <laughs> the only thing I could really think of when I saw that title, Rachel, Rachel, was the joke from Seinfeld about Rochelle, Rochelle. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite episode of Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah. Ben Midler's awesome. in it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. I forgot. But that's sort of like Paul Newman's, sort of his encounter with the son. And I think this is not going to be the first or the second or the third or the fourth or fifth time that we're going to mention Paul Newman. He's an all-time dad actor. Oh, yeah. Um, no getting away from it. Uh, this film itself was nominated for four Academy Awards, uh, Best Actor, Screenplay Based on Other Media, Best Score, and Best Supporting Actor for George Kennedy, which is the only one that it won. It lost Best Actor to Rod Steiger, uh, Best Screenplay to Sterling Siliphant, both of four in The Heat of the Night, which I guess is fair. I guess is fair. That's a fantastic mm-hmm. film. But then it lost Score to Thoroughly Modern Millie, Whoa. Score by Elmer Bernstein. I haven't thought about that in long time. 10 years, 15 years, long time. <laughs> but then George Kennedy does win out over John Cassavetes, Gene Hackman, Cecil Kellaway, and Michael J. Pollard, two of which are for Bonnie and Clyde, which is kind of amazing. That is amazing, yeah. And then George Kennedy himself, I mean, I think I think he's extremely recognizable. He's got such a big like barrel chest and a face that looks like it's like an Easter Island head. It's such a He's such a big presence. He takes up so much <laughs> of the frame every time he's in it. But he's in stuff like Charade, Sons of Katie Elder, oh, Fight yeah. of the Phoenix, Dirty Dozen, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And then it's kind of sad his final film roles in The Gambler from 2014. Did you guys see that? No. Oh, that's that one. That, the, that Jesse Eisenberg? No, no, no. no. It's uh, Mark Wahlberg who right. lost like 100 pounds because he wanted a Best Actor nomination. <laughs> no oh, one gave yeah, it to him. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw pictures of him. <laughs> he's very skinny. <laughs> <laughs> Did he get it? I don't remember. No, no. Oh, no. That sucks. I can't imagine. I think it'll lost more weight. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Yeah, clearly it just, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to get that nom. Yeah, if Christian Bale isn't going to get that for The Machinist, I don't know how much weight you need to lose. 
Other cast members we could mention, people like J.D. Cannon, Robert Drivas is here. You might recognize him from any old show that you might have watched back in the day. Struther Martin from many, many oh Westerns gosh, yeah. as the evil place. warden. Mm-hmm. Um, Dean Stanton and Dennis Hopper, of course. Um, of course. Right. Yeah. And then uh, Joe Van Fleet, the one, the one woman, except for that woman who's hanging up clothes on the line. She That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, and uh, then, yeah. yeah, Joe Van Fleet as his mother, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that was. Uh, I think Betty Davis was wanted that or something. But I think I think Joe Van Fleet does a great job. I guess the most thing the or sorry, I guess the thing she's most recognized for is maybe East of Eden. Pretty good in that. I could see that. I, I haven't seen much with her in it, but I was very captivated by that performance because you can feel the Florida sun in her scene, and oh, yeah. you can also feel what it must feel like to be drinking hard liquor and smoking unfiltered cigarettes in that sun. <laughs> and, and she really Just pulled constantly it off. for the last 60 years. Exactly. <laughs> Poor woman. And I guess for, for the remainder of our crew, we have Lalo Schifrin doing our beautiful, beautiful score. Man, that does not get enough recognition, I think. I, I love his scores. Oh, yeah. I don't think so. I mean, like people talk about Dirty Harry, but I don't know how many people are talking about how great that score is. That's true. I know you hate That's Dirty true. Harry. Yeah. That's that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> Aaron, what are your feelings on Dirty Harry? Uh, yeah, don't like it, but uh, oh, not, wow. not, a, not a big Clint Eastwood fan, to be fair. So, oh, wow. I know. See, that's that's, further, that's further than me. That's further than me. You know, I just, I feel, you know, it was probably good for its time. You're all cutting me to the quick. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like Dirty Harry. Thank you, Jesse. I'll, I'll, Thank we'll you. just, we'll just end with that. It's a positive, happy note. <laughs> But then I also want to mention that this is shot by Conrad Hall, the great, the amazing Conrad Hall, the one that I think even Roger Deakins will talk about being like maybe a better cinematographer than he ever was, which is very, very high praise from from my man, Roger Deakins. Oh, yeah. Um, He's shot stuff like Butch Cassidy. Um, Just if you dive in, he will teach you through his movies how movies are supposed to look, I think. But that kind of wraps up who we have. Does anyone have anything else to mention? Not I. No. <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> you're pretty thorough, you know. I think we got it. I try. I try. I wanted to be more thorough, but then I figured it would just be me talking for a long time. I don't want to do that. It, it was awesome to see Harry Dean Stanton on the screen playing guitar. I, I just, I always like. I never remember when he's in a movie, and so when he shows up, I'm like, oh, oh, he's here. It's great. Kind of, kind of like the dad of that guy performances. Yeah, because right? he just, he's like, oh, you're watching Alien, and you go, oh. Hey. Well, hey, Harry Stanton, how are you? <laughs> What's up? It's good to see you again. That's so true. Yeah. Well, I uh, guess sort of talking about some of our nostalgia, some of our impressions with this, uh, as our guest, Aaron, would you like to talk first? Sure. I, I guess I don't really remember the first time I saw Cool Hand Luke, but I I was very in love with Paul Newman as a teenager, um, not, not least because we have the same birthday, not the same oh, wow. year, oh, fun nice. fact. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would never have uh, guessed. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Sorry. Most people, most people think I'm older, but uh, especially based on my, my interest, but um no, he, uh, yeah, he was, he was always really important to me and like a very big crush of mine. And I was always kind of like salty at Joanne Woodward. Like, you know, I never met Joanne Woodward, though I do know people who used to see her at the stop and shop in my town because of oh. course oh, wow. they lived in Connecticut and I guess they had these dogs that they were training. There's some dog trainer in Connecticut. So while Paul Newman would take the dog to go like learn how to behave itself, Joanne Woodward would go to the stop and shop 
So apparently people would see her there and I'd be like, oh, I would love to go see her and tell her to get her hands off my palm. <laughs> I was like 13. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> anyway, yeah. What was that about? Oh, uh, no, yeah. you'd be like, get, get your hands off my ombre. <laughs> no, but I think, uh, yeah, I don't really remember uh, watching this, but I remember really enjoying it. This time around, not not so much, which is my like, you know, going to be my hot take maybe of of uh, of this episode. I can kind of, you know, be the person that you all push against if you if you like the, the movie as well, you should. And that might be interesting. But uh, yeah, I think I've seen it just a few times. I don't have much nostalgia for it, unfortunately, more more so his earlier work, though. I do love this performance. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I can I can hear you on that. Jesse, yeah. what what do you feel when you cast back in your memory talking about Cool Hand Luke? This was like one of the staples that was always on like TCM or whatever. So I I think I saw it a few times. I think it was boring to me as a kid, so I never watched the whole thing. And I also realized upon rewatching it that I had never ever seen the car wash scene. Like that was totally new yeah. and just like hit me out of the wild. I was like, what, what movie is this? <laughs> Where did this come from? I'm, I'm pretty sure I was ushered out of the room for that scene because like that, that scene is That's just another ridiculous. great female character. Yes. She's very <laughs> strong female lead. Yeah. Really yeah, well yeah. developed. Yeah. Oh yeah. Really <laughs> she has a very, very effective <laughs> character. What we call a single entendre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sorry, good job. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's. I'm sure we're going to talk about that later or whatever. But like, yeah. So I I have a bunch of really strong memories of this movie, especially the Bloodhounds. Man, the yeah. Like I I had such a fear of going to prison when I was a kid, not because like I thought it was so bad, but because like I knew that if I ever escaped, the Bloodhounds would start chasing me, and that's terrifying because these things like I've never seen anything like it. Um, they just, is there another way to say it other than they hound you? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to break down really quick. Your number one fear about going to prison is that if you tried to escape, you would be hunted down by dogs. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, cats, of course, of course you would try to escape every movie that we've ever seen about good guys in prison. They're escaping. I mean, oh, I yeah. think that the great, That's the great bad, escape yeah. is like hardwired into us yeah. that we need to escape. It's yeah. our bound and duty to escape. It's what you have to do if you go to prison. Yeah. 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 And Full also, stop. No, but if you go to a POW camp, I don't know about regular prison. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, why I said full stop, Aaron. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so, so regular prison movies, too, I, I realize this also has influenced my love for a couple other movies that I have in my life, namely Holes. Remember that movie, oh, yeah. Holes? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is clearly based off of Cool Hand Luke to some degree. And also, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which also has tons of Cool Hand Luke references throughout both about people that are essentially in prison or whatever the heck it is in holes. I don't know what that is, but where they escape and then they're, they're always hunted down anyway. Yeah. This movie kind of like shaped my love for those, but like I never even really understood what was going on. I just remembered that there was a guy and he escaped and then he comes back and he weirdly has friends that are kind of creepy. (laughs) And then like this time around, I just realized there's a lot more to the movie that I'm excited to discuss with you guys later. But yeah, that's, that's my encounter with the movie. It's definitely like me watching it with my brothers and dad. Mm, um, cool. Yeah. How about you, Mike? So the first time I saw this movie, I was at my cousin's house. Um, I think it was his birthday or something. How old? 
I think I must have been 12, maybe. W- was this one of his 13? choice? Well, we were choosing between um, Laura Croft Tomb Raider in mm. this movie. Mm. Um, and I still have yes. not seen Laura Croft Tomb Raider, mm. but his mom thought Cool Hand Luke would be a better movie for us to watch. So we watched this. Yeah. <laughs> and it was very different from what I understand Laura Croft Tomb Raider is about. I don't know what it's about because, again, I still have not seen it. So Laura Croft is a <laughs> Tomb Raider. Oh, okay. So she raids tombs? Yes, but not in that movie, really. <laughs> it's, it's mostly Great. about her shooting people and wearing a really tight shirt. That's mostly the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. So 12-year-old, you guys made a really good choice, I think. Yeah, well, there we go. I think I fell asleep in the middle of it, but I do remember the, the end scene where he gets shot and uh, spoiler alert, I guess. In retrospect, yeah, it's like fifty years old. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but still, you know, but that—that's just like the image of him in the window has been in my mind since then, and like yelling at God and everything was really striking. And uh, yeah, so that's it was. I thought it was really interesting, very different from what I expected, considering that I thought it was going to be closer to what I expected Laura Croft Tomb Raider to be, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like cool. It wasn't, I thought it was like, oh, this is a cool movie about a guy named Cool Hand Luke. I thought he was going to have like a gun, but he didn't in case you haven't seen (laughs) Cool Hand Luke. He doesn't have a gun. (laughs) It is not about a Tomb Raider. Yes. It's It's about a prisoner. It's not about a Tomb Raider. And how society beats him. Yes, exactly. So I thought it was very, very cool though. And I was really excited to see it before talking about it with you guys. Yeah. What about you, Vito? Uh, I actually have no deep founded nostalgia for this. I did not see it until I was in college where there was a lot of guys that I knew that had posters of cool hand Luke up in their dorm and they would point, I mean, it was, it was like that. And then it would be next to it, like the American flag. And then sometimes you get like a good Pulp Fiction poster in there. And it's like, this is me on my wall. It's cool hand Luke, America, Quentin Tarantino. And you're like, all right, so you're 19. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So I did, I I watched it, maybe some like numerous dorm screenings where all the guys would like take off their shirts and then jump around and like mime out the movie and stuff. Uh, And then I finally sat down to physically by myself go over it a few years ago. And I was very, you know, heartbroken by the, by the story that it told. And it made me feel much sadder than I remember feeling when I'd originally seen it. He seemed a lot less cool to me. Than, than he did when he was younger. And the whole movie as as a whole seemed a lot less cool to me when you take it out of that sort of uber masculine kind of like this is this is us kind of thing. Yeah. And just more as a solitary experience, especially in regards to talking about this and would I show this to my kids? Because my, my daughter watched, <clears throat> I don't know, 15 minutes of it. And it was sort of the middle part, right when, right when the egg eating kind of happens. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's funny. And she was mostly confused. She's like, why, why is why? he eating so many eggs? <laughs> and the scene where the one guy goes over and he flicks Luke's belly. Oh, he's like, that's about to burst tight as a watermelon. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> Did he have a body double for that scene? I don't know. I would imagine so. I, I don't know I how would, you do I would that. hope so. I really <laughs> hope so. Because <laughs> that's, that's too much for any one man to take on. It's um, true. You cannot eat 50 wait, eggs in an hour. I didn't, I didn't mean, I don't think that he actually, anyone actually ate 50 eggs. But no, like, he, he didn't, the he didn't, stomach, eat, he didn't so. eat one egg actually. Oh, he never ate even one egg. He spat them all out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so Paul Newman did not eat 50 eggs. Oh, that's good for him. Oh, of course he didn't <laughs> like, look at him. He is not a man who eats 50 eggs. 
It's true. And if he does, he's pounding him down in like a tall glass and then he's lifting weights right afterwards. Oh, yeah. But in, as far as to sort of answer the question we usually do, like when would we show this or, or would we show this at all to our kids? Uh, but if you had asked me before I'd seen this as a recent time, I would say for sure, definitely, absolutely. And now I'm, I'm a little bit more on the fence. Oh, yeah. I I think it has a lot of good things to say, maybe extra textually, maybe about the penal system or about redemption or about crime and punishment. But if I was going to, I think I'd want to talk with my kids about this when they're a lot older and not not when they would just appreciate the surface level of things. So I would say I would, but maybe when they're actually an adult. What what do you think, Aaron? Would you show this to your kids? Well, you know, I hate those people who don't have kids and they make pronouncements about <laughs> what they're going to do with their kids, you know. <laughs> um, but if I, if I, you know, if my imaginary kids, I, I guess I kind of agree with that. I think maybe when they're... 17, maybe about to go out to college. Maybe there's something in this that has some lessons about the college dormitory experience. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but certainly it's a very, uh, you know, like morally ambivalent and, and complicated film. And I think that that's, I, I think dangerous is maybe uh, too strong a word, but but depending on the personality of my kid, I think I would have to feel that out. I think that, you know, 15, 16 at the height of the rebellious phase is supposed to be, of course, probably what this movie most appeals to. But I think that's also maybe one of the dangers of the the film, which is just that it can maybe give the wrong idea about, about what kind of behavior should be seen as, should be rewarded or should be seen as a positive or should be seen as a, you know, a quote unquote hero and, and what that might mean. I, I just think it's such a complex like a morally complex film that I would probably wait until they're 17, 18, ready to, to go to college. If that's, if that's what they want to do. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm like, what am I going <laughs> to, my kids are going to go to college no matter right? what. No. <laughs> it's I don't either, make any pronouncements. You got to show this to them and say, it's either college, which will look like this sometimes, or you're going to go to prison. Like that, that's the only, <laughs> which, will be this, which will be this. Yeah. We still have and of course gangs. the scariest part is if you try to escape, there will be blood. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That is, that is most terrifying. Wow. Yeah. I think, I think I rhyme with you in a lot of things. Uh, in fact, I, man, I have no idea when, or if I would show this to my kids, this, this is a weird movie guys. This is not like, I don't know, like looking back, looking at my like childhood self in my view of Luke, I genuinely thought he was cool. I thought he was a cool guy and I thought he could like do anything. And my adult self was like, I can't believe I thought that. Look at this. Look at this loser. (laughs) (laughs) Like it, it's, it's such a strange, it's so weird. I I don't, you know what? I'm going to hold off on when I would show this to my kids till like at the end of this conversation, after we flesh this out more, because I think this requires some more serious thought and conversation that I genuinely want to have with you guys. So Mm. I'll, I'll hold off. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the complicated, like this is obviously a very complicated movie and, and it's, it's got a whole lot of interesting ideas that it's playing around with. I de- I'm excited to show this to my kids when they're, when they're teenagers. So when, when I saw it with, with my aunt, she had kind of forgotten that it wasn't just about a cool dude. It was about like a whole lot of other things, um, <laughs> God and the man and um, leaders and all this great stuff. Um, but we talked about it for like an hour afterwards and we, you know, we were 12 or something talked about like, 
hey, what do you think of this guy? What do you think of this place? And and it was a really interesting conversation. I don't think it really made me a less rebellious person, <laughs> um, but maybe it did. Imagine if we hadn't had that conversation. I would have been a much more rebellious person. It's maybe. hard for me to, to imagine you being a more rebellious person. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I definitely, I want to, I, I want to create this space where they don't like go to college and put up a poster of Cool Hand Luke because they think like this guy is the coolest dude in the world. Yeah. You know, uh, um, you, you can't put up that poster unironically. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think so. Like you can't straight up be like, cool hand Luke. See how it's in the title? His, he's cool. That guy's cool. I want to be like that guy. Yeah. Because that guy's actually like very tragic. Yeah. And there's something very sad about it. And I think that the moment that you would walk into a dorm room or something like that, or even like, even at jobs that I've had where uh, I was working in North Dakota on the oil fields, it was very popular for the under the underling when they're working on it in a crew. He would say stuff like, you know, take it off, boss. And we'd all go, take it off, Luke. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he'd be like, take it a sip, boss. Take it a sip, Luke. That's funny. Like, it just, it, there's a surface level reading that I think that most people would take away from it. And that's, you're kind of wanting to talk about it in a more nuanced way with your kids. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that that's kind of how I'd want to do it is to create the space. And I do think that, um, you know, there's, there's probably going to be some gray area, some prudence involved when it comes to when they're ready to see it. Like, I don't really see my my older daughter being, she's not the rebellious type, but my younger daughter just this last week has decided every time I say like, hey, can you, you know, eat some food? She's like, no. So I, I asked her to do something and I heard her say, okay. And I was like, jo- Joanna, like, this is amazing. You said yes to something. <laughs> it was like, wait. I was playing a game. This is all what I read. She's two. I, I'm reading. I'm reading this into her. I was playing a game. I meant to say no. Yes. She kept saying, I meant to say no. I meant to say no. <laughs> so a bit more dangerous for her. Dangerous for yeah. her, you know, dangerous yeah. being a bit of a strong. Word, but yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying with like the rebellious stuff. And then looking back to myself as a kid, like I, I thought he was cool, but he also gets shot at the end. So it's never yeah. like I wanted to replicate his behavior. Even the, I saw it when I was really young. I, I guess I never specified that. I saw it in like elementary school, like okay, like wow. eight, oh, seven. Wow. Yeah. That's why I'd never seen the car wash. <laughs> I was way too young. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like, I guess uh, it's like, it's, I don't know how to view this movie in some ways. Like I was reading some reviews by Roger Ebert and he wrote two reviews. Right. And sometimes he, and uh, and the more recent review, which he wrote 41 years later, he specifically mentions it was it was about the egg scene, right? In his old review, he wrote about how that scene was funny and how the theater responded to it and laughed at it. And now he's like, I, I'm older and this scene disgusts me. Like, it, and also like on a moral level, like what's going on is just, it's ter- terrifying too. This guy becoming some sort of weird Christ figure laying on the on the bench and sometimes I wonder if like part of the experience of this movie is like seeing it when you're really young and then seeing it when you're older. Like, I think we've talked about the age donut for when to show it. Yes. Thing. <laughs> yes. So it's things you start, you start when they're young, there's a gap and then you show it when you're older. I almost think this might lie somewhere in there. And because like you show it when you're young, when they can't understand the complex stuff, only get the surface stuff and realize, Oh, if you're this rebellious, you die. And then later you get to, you get to find out more and you get to go through the same sort of transformation that like the rest of the prisoners do when they see Luke. I don't know. 
I've got a lot of random kind of weird thoughts about this, and I don't know where where I land, which is why I still want to hold off till the end of the episode to give a concrete answer. Fair enough. Well, I think Sontag said great literature is any literature worth rereading. And I think that that's, you know, the rereadability factor means that there's something new to discover every time you read it, right? And I think that that's yeah. the same is true for these these retrospective reviews of, of these great movies. I really like that Ebert does that because he, this is something we covered in uh, an episode of subtext where we talked about the graduate because he did that same, you know, he does that with, with a lot of, you know, classics that came out early on in his career. And, and I, I think that it's important as a barometer to see how, how the film has changed, but also to see how you have changed. I, I think that's really important. And this film, like the fact that you, have had that kind of transformation, you know, it makes me wonder, I wonder, rather, I wonder if that's part of the message of the film, right? Is it supposed to be that now we've, we've gotten old and we've become fuddy duddies and now we're working within the system. So of course we're going to see Luke as some, as some sort of negative figure. Whereas, you know, when we had the freedom of, of being teenagers or being children, um, were we free to see him as, that that kind of symbol of doing your own thing and and b- being rebellious and fighting against the evil man like you know our parents oh gosh hate them <laughs> only ever trying to give us food and keep a food o- keep a roof over our heads or whatever you know it, it's um i don't know i don't i don't know if that's a childish thing or or what? I mean, I get you know we could talk about that too, but sorry, I'm kind of going off in a direction. Also, Vito, you haven't said if you're going to show it to your kids, so I want to get back to you. <laughs> That's true. Uh, <laughs> I, I might, I might. I'm at a might, and I'm at a might until I hear where Jesse's going to come down, um, which is which is <laughs> yeah. a classic move that I make. Wow. Uh, yeah, I just wow. I, I parent by by democracy a little bit. It's a, it takes it's a village, guys. It takes yeah, a village. It takes a village, <laughs> and you it guys really are the does. village. And uh, yeah, I want I'm, you to I'm decide happy for me. to be your village. Yeah, you are. You are, buddy. Um, <laughs> it's a great okay. village. I like this. It story. is. Great village. Also, I was just village. thinking. I was just I thinking know. when Aaron was talking, like the difference between watching this when you're a teenager and really feeling that rebellious, you know, f the system kind of energy is when you're listening to to fight the power when you're a teenager and you're oh, like, yeah. yeah, fight the power, fight the power. And I still listen to that song, but now I'm driving my hybrid to my <laughs> nine to five job. Like, I roll my window down and turn it down in consideration for my fellow human beings. <laughs> That's what it's turned into now. It feels like the opening scene of Office Space. It does. <laughs> Just destroying the fax machine. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Uh, That's what being an adult is after being a rebellious teenager. That's awesome. I feel like we really want to talk about this movie We've we keep talking around it, so like let's let's go in, man. Let's let's yeah. like get into this let's thing and, and talk about talk about Cool Hand Luke. Ask a question. Yeah, we keep talking around how this this is kind of a complicated movie. It's it's got a complicated idea of the protagonist. Like Luke is Luke is a we've got some issues with him. I think mm-hmm. maybe yeah. Um, do we? Is he is he a normal protagonist? Maybe let's start there. Like is is he is he someone you're like? Oh yeah, he's the good guy. Like I'm, I'm Luke and I, I want to be Luke and, and here we go. For being different as a protagonist, I, I did immediately go, oh, that's the good guy. Yeah. Maybe it's just because okay. it's Paul Newman, but I think that's, that's the most obvious man. answer. And I'm sure that someone has a, has a much more layered answer, but I just wanted to say the obvious one, you know, get in there first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I yeah. think that's really true. I, I think that, um, 
this this movie HUD. I don't know that if you guys have seen that from '63. It was a really shocking movie for me to to see. Is it's also one of my favorite Paul Newman performances because he's he's supposed to be like the out and out bad guy in that. I mean, he's awful. There's a there's an attempted rape that he mm-hmm. tries to commit against poor Patricia Neal. Um, yeah. Even in that. So so this, I think, is part of the charisma of Paul Newman, and it's why this movie works, and it's why I don't think it could work with any other actor. Because um, in that movie, when he plays this like despicable, just ass, um, he comes off still as the most likable character. <laughs> um, and his, his, like, his like nice dad comes off as this like boring, fuddy-duddy, where every time he says something, you're just like, hurry up, my God. You know, he seems like he's dying at the end of every sentence. Um, whereas Paul Newman has this, this alive, you know, this, this electricity and, and um, a r- real incredible charisma. And I think that that comes across in this film so well, it's the only thing I think that sells his character. I mean, I I wasn't rebellious even when I was a teenager, so this this never really worked for me. Except that I thought Paul Newman was hot. I mean, that was the extent of my, um, and and I thought that he was great. Yet I thought this was a great movie because he was great and it was great. And it's that's true. But I guess like looking looking at what complicates this for me is I think the fact that he's he's a rebel with with no purpose. And he seems to be rebelling for the sake of just being a jerk, maybe. I, I don't know. We could talk about that. And, and I'm really uncomfortable with the very clear allegories in every single se- – I, I feel like it's just it's just littered with these, you know, Christological images. And I don't understand why. Like what, like what makes him worthy of that, that kind of, you know, canonization, for lack of a better term? Um, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, well, I, I've never known if if his if the Christological images are supposed to be like like he is like you know Jesus or or he's the the fake Jesus, the plastic Jesus, which is a mm-hmm. song that he sings midway through. Like, yeah, he's supposed to be. I don't know. Instead of instead of escaping for for others, and it, like when the when he escapes and then comes back and it turns out that the, the picture that he sent the prisoners is fake and he tells them all, he gets angry at them and says, like, stop living through me, right? Yeah. He says, stop, like, doesn't he say, like, stop eating me? Yeah, stop, stop feeding off stop me, Stop feeding right? off stop of me. Stop feeding yeah. off me. Yeah. Yeah, Again. literally an anti-Jesus yeah. thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in a lot of ways, he's basically like the Antichrist. He's being lauded in sort of this weird unholy trinity in the picture, right? It's him, it's him and two women, and he swears it's fake. Yeah, it's like the final thing that we see in the movie is a is a close up on his face in in this trinity. It's such a weird close up too. Like yeah. it's it's yeah. his eye, but it's off. Yeah, you're like in the middle of his eyebrow. It's so weird. Yeah. yeah, kind of telling you telling you that maybe that vision of his or our vision of him is is wrong, is skewed yeah. in some way. Yeah, in a really it. So this movie is littered with a bunch of those images, like you mentioned, Aaron, but something I really, I both enjoy and I'm kind of irritated by is how there's not very many of them that are very subtle. Like it's very much like, bam, here it is. Look at him. Yeah. Look at him laying on there. Look, his legs are crossed. He's wearing a white loincloth. It's Jesus. Yeah. You're like, well, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> what, did, what did you but think? Yeah, is I, he? Well, I mean, I think um, just on that, I, I kind of took it this time around watching it as this is it's showing us how the prisoners are viewing him more than necessarily how we're supposed to see him. And maybe 
you know, as as the shot zooms out at the end, we're supposed to be also zooming out and realizing, like, within this microcosm, he's taken on this mantle of whatever t- in the eyes of the prisoners through his rebelliousness, through his, you know, not caring at all. But in fact, like, this is a very backwards place. But at the same time, it's got a, the core of it, this questioning of what, like, does God exist? That kind of it almost like comes out of nowhere in a certain way. Like <laughs> yeah. it's it's a little weird. Like when he he doesn't have a whole lot of conversations with God throughout the movie until the very end when he's yelling at God, like where where are you? Yeah, like he, he just has the one in the rain. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and then the, the one, one in the, the rain. in the church. Well, he, sorry, he has four that I know of. He has four. There's one okay. in the rain. There's one in the rain where he says, "Kill me or love me, one or the other. Let me know it." Yeah, and then. He gets he digs his own grave, gets knocked in there, and says, "Please God, please stop hitting me." And then right. right after that, he comes back into the barracks or whatever, and all of the prisoners are like leaving him alone, and he's stumbling, and he's just like, "Where are you?" And he's like reaching his hand out to grab somebody, which I took to be I don't know if it was God or his mother who was supposed to always be with him, apparently. And then there's a final scene in the church, and also fu- funny thing about the church. The only reason he goes in is because he hears thunder rumbling behind mm. him, which is like what what he's looking for from God when he talks to him in the rain. Right. Yeah, he's looking yeah. for an answer. And this time he's walking down the street, hears thunder rumbling behind him. He looks behind him. He backtracks, goes into the church. And then as he's asking him questions, there's a couple more rumbles. And then finally he gets his answer through through the guy. And then, you know, he gets killed. So God finally yeah. kills him. This I guess. is what you send me. He, he didn't he didn't even like the answer. You know, the yeah. guy's like, we'll yeah. make a deal. And he's like, oh, well, that's not what I want. Yeah, that's not what <laughs> yeah. So instead, you know, God's he says, God, let me love me or kill me. And he kills him, I guess, yeah. if that's the answer. I, I, I mean, I think because the uh, there's a deification kind of of the man. Right. Not the man, yeah. like the man, capital. Yeah. M like of the uh, state. Right. Yeah. Because yes, yeah. when he's Captain in, like you're talking about when he's in the grave and he says, please, God, stop hitting me. He's sort of treating the wardens and the bosses kind of like that. Like they're yeah. the only thing that is standing in between him and heaven or they are heaven to him. I, I don't know. Is that is that what do you think, Aaron? Well, I would say that that's, you know, the, they're the authority figure. Maybe he's equating them with God. Um <sighs> You know, I think I think too w- with these sort of quasi disciples. I-, I think, you know, that that last shot of him smiling before it fades into the fact that they've then, um, you know, retold his story, telling it on the side of the road, and now now he's become this figure of legend. And then we see that sort of absurd clip show of all the shots of him smiling throughout throughout the movie, <laughs> um, and ending with the glorious photograph of him with two women. You know. So it seems clear to me that we're supposed to think, or rather the filmmakers maybe think that we think the way that his disciples do. And that that makes me very uncomfortable and I find it a little bit uh, problematic. But um, <laughs> I, I just- Wait, uh, so, so you, you, you do think though that they, um, that they, they want us to be seeing him as that kind of like, as, as a true hero. I mean, because I guess what we're, we're kind of circling around here is that he's not really a hero- that he's um, or or he's like he's got problems, whatever. But but you're being like no, the the filmmakers are are saying they have a definite perspective. Yeah, is that it, or is that like it, I, I'm trying to to make sure I understand? I, th- I think so. I think that um, you know, his being an anti-hero 
is also him being a hero for 1967. Right, I mean, yeah. I, I think so, you know, I think it's it's obviously more complex than that. And of course, we're supposed to kind of wink at at some of the images because they're just so, so obvious. At the same time, I, I, I don't know that he's supposed to be an antichrist so much as like a Christ for our age, you know, mm. 1967 yeah. <laughs> being the yeah, age, yeah. you know, um, that, that this is a kind of a message picture. And that, you know, I found a lot of that to be. I don't know, sometimes very clever, sometimes very heavy handed. And I think the the interspersal of those things makes me think that I'm not that confident in the filmmaker um, rather than, oh, sometimes they're winking at me, sometimes they're not. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it, the, the mixed messaging made me think, okay, this is a this is a movie that's kind of just assuming that I'm going to be on board <laughs> with with the and I am. I mean, you know, that's the thing. It's like, oh, it's Paul Newman, so it works. That's that's kind of the the weird heist that this movie gets away yeah. with. The fact that he smiles so well. Yeah. 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 I mean like like that's it's like, six, it's, it's 60% so much believability fun. already. <laughs> it's so much fun. That, right. that slideshow of him smiling is so much fun. You're like you're smiling at the end of it. Yeah. I mean I am. I am. You're just like, like, you're like damn that cool hand. Yeah. What a Luke. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Um, what do you think, Jesse? I think I think you're. Uh, I, I I'm going to question you a little bit, specifically because of, of it's really just one scene. It's the mom scene, which is just so bizarre. Uh, but that's also when you find out that Luke isn't just this this rough edged like dude. He says, "Please don't go to prison. Chains aren't good." He says this to the kid, right? And then you basically find out that there's this woman that really loves him his mom of course and then like and he doesn't know what to do with that and he feels like he's a failure in his own life that's the that's the feeling i got from that and that just felt very like if you watch the whole movie with that in mind which a lot of people i think tend to just forget and drop off that there's this whole like five minute dialogue that he has with his mom um saying i'm always going to be with you and that it's painful for me to love you and then it gives a i don't know you're it seems like he's not really much of a of a hero there. You find out he's kind of a failure, and he's just well. And, yeah. and there's j- just as another point, you find out about a girl, like a, a girl in Kentucky or something that he had failed with. Like he had, he he she loved left him. She left him for some dude with a Porsche or something convertible. with a convertible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I th- okay. So and so if I if I can just recap then so. Um, Aaron, you're you're kind of saying that some of the the metaphors that are at play here, because they're not only because they're not subtle, but they also seem kind of confused in the way that we're supposed to view Luke. And Jesse, are you proposing that it's actually fairly clear how we're supposed to see him? I don't know. I think I think the movie leaves it op- sort of open. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But it just seems to be a little bit of a, a different that scene seems to provide a different take from what, from what uh, the, the solid structure that you had uh, that you seem to be proposing about Luke. And I almost want to say that that's there. That's definitely there of him being this like, you know, rebel without a cause, like lovable fool, I guess that's definitely there. Uh, but there's also, I think there's more to the more to Luke. I think. Like he's a rebel with a cause. He's, he's, I think he's a rebel trying to figure out where on earth he exists. Like it really strikes, strikes me when he says, when he says to God, kill me or love me one or the other. Right. He just, there, he can't, he's, he has nothing. He's no one. 
where does he fit in in this entire life? That's basically what it's about, right? Like he's a misfit. He's an outcast. He's outcast from everything. He has no idea where he exists. And I think that smile at the end of him dying, it's just like, oh, God, God killed me. I'm happy now. This is great. What do you, like, what do you think, Aaron? <laughs> I think that's true. And I, I, you know, I, I really agree with you, Jesse, a lot of what you're saying, because I'm so, uh, you know, I'm so at six and, sixes and sevens with my opinion of this film. Um, but I also think that Luke never makes a choice, right? He, he doesn't, he doesn't ever put himself on the line, but he wants other people, like he wants God to, to put himself on the line for, for Luke, which he already has, obviously. But he, he never, he, he thinks that by backing away from everything that, that he can sort of, how do, how do I want to put this? Force something like yeah, like it. It seems to me that he's he's trying to like he's complaining about a life in which he has put no stakes. Like he's put nothing mm. into this, you know. He, he um, the way he even gets to prison is a joke, right? Yeah, it's a yeah. total. That that's the thing, and that everything everything with him is this idea that um, you know he just didn't think about it. He just didn't care. Like he, he goes into the army and he's like, it was just a way to pass the time. Came out with a bronze star, a silver star, purple heart, but he comes out and made it to sergeant, but then comes out the same rank that he went in. You know, he doesn't. So, so even when he's in um, a situation where, of course, which is crazy to me, this is supposed to take place in 48 because it looks like such a 60s movie. Yeah. But even, you know, when he's obviously drafted and, and in World War II and there's a, there's a clear like easy cause there, whatever, fight for your country, right? It's an easy war um, uh, to, to, to feel, you know, pretty morally secure about. Even then, he, he can't uh, live within that system. He, he can't, you know, he seems to operate on this kind of negativity where he's not saying yes to something. He's just saying no. And to me, you you have to say yes to something. You got to, that's part of being an adult, right? You got to, you got to stand for something. You got, you got to do, you got to make a choice, right? Even if it's just to choose to have a certain job or to, you know, whatever, to to get up in the morning and put your pants on. And just, it seems like to me, uh, his, his, um, his lack of thought is actually just as oppressive as the conditions inside the prison. Which is which is like kind of another thing, but anyway. Yeah, um, that's neat. I, I really like that. So, would, or would you be saying then, going back, reflecting on your earlier point, that the do you think it's the intention of the filmmaker to show you that, or do you think that's sort of accidentally in the source material and it didn't quite make it over into the way that he's that Mr. Stuart Rosenberg is filming this and showing us all these all these images? Like, would you ascribe a level of intentionality to this? I'm not sure, to be honest. I think what I'm kind of backing into is the fact that I don't think this is a particularly well-directed movie. I think it suffers mm-hmm. from that. I'm probably not alone in that opinion, uh, you know, but I, I guess I don't feel as though I, I would want either a more complicated film or I guess a less complicated film <laughs> in a way. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want the less complicated film, but at least it would be, you know, like making a statement. Um, I think that maybe the movie suffers from the same kind of ambivalence as Luke does. I don't know. And maybe that in itself is the statement. I, I don't know. I've, I've <laughs> thought about this so many ways now. My, my head's going to explode. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel I will, like if there's that... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jesse. I will say that now hearing what you just said about Luke, I, yeah, I, I think I'm 100% behind you. I guess I, I'm 
I'm still not behind the whole like uh, that the they didn't intend for us to see that in the movie. And I guess that's the that's the magic of the mom scene. That's where I I can't interpret that in any other way other than I'm supposed to view Luke kind of unfavorably right now because like the mom is so nice. She's so happy. Like, how are you not like she feels like in the film, you're supposed to be drawn to her and her opinions of him. And you can't back Luke in that situation. She's loving. Was, I don't know if she's I, happy. I don't, I don't think she's happy. Oh, yeah. She's sorry. Sorry. Miserable. Sorry. Yeah. She's deeply miserable. But she like she has that appearance of, of some some joy, some love, something in her, even though I know she's suffering. Yeah. Well, she's like she's proud of Luke because she loves Luke. But she's mm-hmm. also, you know, when she, when he says, yeah, when you settle down, you know, we were just like, oh, you're so boring. And there's this, it's almost <laughs> as if the whole family talks about Luke all the time. Yeah. As in, and when he's not sort of entertaining and fun for them, even though he's happier or more stable or doing what he should be doing with his life, they all kind of don't like that. And then, or maybe it's just the way that an old dying woman is trying to reframe her life and figure out how she feels. She's we, maybe it's only because we have the one scene. She, I think, is one of the more nuanced, maybe the most she's nuanced great, character yeah. here. Uh, well, and also like she's dying. She's never going to see her son again. This is the last conversation they're going to have. Yeah. So she's not going to be like, you've made me miserable in my old age. I don't know. She loves she, him. She, she did. She, say that, he's he. <laughs> she yeah. did. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But, but with, like, a smile. with a smile, <laughs> but with a smile, yeah. which I think is probably the best way to do that if you are dying. Yeah. Uh, no, I think You've it's clear that, miserable. that she he broke her he broke his mother's heart many 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 times, yeah. and that's kind of what she's telling him. But also trying to reframe it in a way that maybe she can feel resigned to it. Yeah, I don't even want to use a better word than resigned. Like she's closing this this chapter. This is the last. She's born on a chariot on on the back of a pickup truck. You know, yeah. to see her son before she departs for for the gates of pearl. Um, and this is sort of her her goodbye message. Yeah. And he doesn't even talk to Joe, you know, his, his oh, other yeah. brother. Doesn't even yeah. look at him. Looks at the kid, turns away. Nothing for the brother. Joe Joe gives him <laughs> the banjo and says, now you, you don't have to come home. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Which was my word. Just yeah. kind of neat. Yeah, this whole kinda thing is like, you know, he calls out to God to let, to, I don't know, for God to love him. But like here he has like a genuinely loving family. Mm-hmm. Like, what's wrong with you, Luke? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. All he's done is rebel his whole life against everything, every system that he can. The rules, his family, the regulations. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about um, the way he gets his name? I thought, like, I, I, I didn't ever really, like, before, I don't know, when I was a kid, I, I never quite figured it out, but I thought it was really cool. He had a cool um, hand. He played. He, he played cool it cold. Hand. But that's I think. What, what I think what um what Dragnet says is like sometimes Line. nothing can be a, a a really cool hand. What line? Drag line. Drag, drag, drag line. Dragnet is an awesome drag TV line. show that we're going to watch someday. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I keep thinking of it as Dragnet. I think I wrote it in my notes. Dragnet the whole time. Um, <laughs> no, he's the drag line on Luke. He's he, the drag. He drags line. behind Luke the whole time. Right, yeah. right. No, but he says, like, so- sometimes nothing can be a really cool hand. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. But then you realize what that, I, I don't know, I felt like I realized what that really meant. As it goes along, like, so he talks about that. It's it's when they're playing poker and he bluffs like crazy. And it's yeah. the best bluff that you've ever seen. Like, if you were playing poker, you probably would realize it was a bluff. But in the movie, it looks great. They're they're in prison. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. I don't know. I don't know yeah. how good they are. But it comes right after he gets beat up and keeps getting back up again yeah. to fight Dragline, who is the symbol of order within, like, the prison 
like of the prisoners, he's leading the the in, in ultimate prisoners. disorder. There's still order, and Luke is still gonna fight it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like you're watching, everyone's getting sick, like watching this happen because he's just they're just saying like, dude, stop, like stop getting back up. You're feeling kind of sick, and it's not like. You're not really angry at drag line anymore. You're kind of angry at Luke for doing this. Yeah. Which is really like kind of weird. Stop putting me through this. Like stop making me watch you do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really weird scene in a lot of ways. And also something that when I was younger, I was like, yeah, that's what you got to do. You got to just like all that matters. You keep getting back up and sure you're going to get knocked down again, but you keep getting back up to show the man. Yeah. You know, to show the man. At a certain point, your statement kind of becomes your statement is nothing. Yeah, it's just like maybe what you're talking about with the poker hand. There's yeah. there's nothing here in this statement anymore. There's a statement when Rocky does it, when Rocky won't won't just keeps getting back up because Rocky the boxer is there standing for his his family. He's yeah. there standing for he stands for so much something so at much. all, and Luke is standing for just rudderless rebellion. It, just it like seems. I don't want you to tell me what to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. in any way. Is that kind of what you were thinking too, Aaron? I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that makes me wonder like, like what, what is the point? You know, I, and I think the only clues that we get are the fact that he says, you know, that he resists, uh, he says something like, you know, a lot of you guys laying down rules and regulations or whatever. And, and he keeps offering this defense of like not, not thinking. So he, obviously he's, he's, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out here, like, what is it that he doesn't like about this situation? Um, I mean, there's a lot, obviously, that we could say is bad about the situation. <laughs> obviously, being in prison is not ideal. And certainly there are insulting, stupid, inhumane elements of this, right? Um, like announcing their number all the time when they're leaving the prison, like having certain rituals of order that's, that really seem to transcend necessity, though I'm sure there's a reason why they originated even just announcing dehumanization yeah right right <laughs> right whether whether or not that's the legitimate i mean i think there are certain dehumanizing elements that are that are there for the sake of dehumanization but you know you've also forfeited certain rights uh by breaking the law in the first place right he, um he knew it he yeah he fully anticipated that right right so so i guess you know What's interesting about that is, or what I think is interesting about it, maybe it's not that interesting, is that these this regimentation and and this this conformity, I think it's it's meant to induce this kind of automatic response, right? Like like these guys are just you know they're, they're used to it. They they accept the order, and they've been you know suitably brainwashed. So this it, it's a regimentation, which also probably, of course, existed in the army, right? The army builds on this regimentation too, which is just to produce automation. Sometimes that could be for your own good, like to quickly know what to do in order to save your life in, in the case of the army. But here it's just to go along to get along or whatever. So by definition, automation doesn't require thinking either, right? It's just a trained, unthinking response yeah. rather than what Luke seems to want, which is an untrained, unthinking response. <laughs> so um, I think that in order to effectively rebel against a system like that, you have to actually think that, you know, in other words, like you, you, you can't find fight not thinking with not thinking. Um, and I think that's where I see that, that real void in the center of Luke, in the heart of Luke. 
which is maybe very realistic and very interesting, but it also just makes him such an incredibly pathetic character. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're right that he's just, yeah, that's why as an adult, like I don't connect with Luke in almost any way. It's like, well, actually there, there's a little bit of the, of that though. Um, it, even going back to the prison, like there are the little things, but it, it's not, it's not the little dehumanizing things that really get to Luke. What gets to him when he starts escaping is when they throw him in the box for having his mother die. Yeah. That's, right. and that's the only time he even like, he says something like mildly intelligent, <laughs> which is like when the guy's just like, I'm just doing my job. It's like, then don't do it. Right. Yeah. He's like yeah. actually taking a stand for something rather than nothing. Um, because he's being punished for something that is not a crime done, in yeah. any way. Right. It's yeah. something he didn't even do. It's like a preventative measure. And it's like when yeah. the preventative measure happens, it's like, well, no more fun and games. Now I'll rebel against this. This is this. This is the heart of my of my whole creed, I guess. Yeah. It almost seems like his rebellion is is the the purpose of it is to break systems. Like he just wants to break <laughs> every system. He the can. earth shaker. Yeah. He's the yeah. Earth shaker. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think that's a big part of it. To, to go back to um, Aaron, what you had been saying about him being a wimp, and in some ways he's kind of like the ultra wimp because he not he like he rebels against nothing and makes the situation worse. And then when there's actually something to genuinely rebel against, he like he confuses that major injustice with like everything else that bad that's ever happened in his life and tells God that like he's never given them a good hand. It's like we've seen your family, dude. They love you. I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> uh, like he had he's had something he's had good stuff but he's like it, it's almost like if you're playing a hand of poker and you get constantly good cards and you throw them away and then for your one bad hand um you you bluff and you win and then you bluff again and then you lose everything that's what it seems like it's happening to luke right now and then he's complaining about that yeah hmm I think uh, to to transition this to something, you know, what you guys are saying is ringing a bell in terms of, you know, we keep talking about it, but Luke's Luke's sort of view on God, this this sort of rudderless rebellion is actually fairly familiar to me in terms of being an angry young man uh, who had difficulty in organized systems before and would just rebel against authority because authority existed and authority sucks. So we should rebel against it. It's, it's your moral obligation to get rid of those that tell you what to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And <laughs> eventually you run out of institutions to piss off and you are stuck <laughs> at the central institution, which is your belief system. Uh, right? Vito knows this. Oh, I thought he, you were going to say tried... prisons with bloodhounds. Yeah. But sorry, Jesse. Oh, Vito tried to piss off every institution. So you would know. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a story off mic. I'll tell that one. Uh, uh, but when you finally kind of, at least for my personal self, uh, projecting onto this movie in some way to try and find something to understand, is when you when you go full circle and you you piss off everything you can, in the end you end up with yourself, and you're the cause of all of this. But what happens, at least for me and what I saw in Luke, is that you turn it away from yourself and back to God. And you say, this is God's fault, because if he didn't make me like this, then I wouldn't have made the choices that I did. Therefore, if so facto, God, you're to blame. You're the worst card dealer in the history of card dealers. Um, I actually had a, a uh, an advisor one time, great man, tell me that I had been dealt a bad hand of, at life. And I was like, oh, perfect. All the excuse I need. <laughs> I'm going to ride that one forever. <laughs> For like a long time. Yeah. Until like a year or two ago. Yeah. Uh, but nice. talking about Luke, I see a lot of 
my earlier self inside of this man. But of course, he took it much, 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 much further, right? He he denied everything in his life and now he's casting away. And what I actually like about this movie and looking at it in a kind of a tragic way, it's not a true tragedy because he doesn't start out that great, right? And the way that he ends is almost ignoble because he gets shot in a church and the people who could take care of him almost refuse to and say, no, we're going to go back to the prison church and that's just what it's going to be. And then we're led to believe because of the way the car pulls out and then the light turns from green to red that he never made it. That yeah, was the yeah. passing of Luke. Yeah. And so in that way, in that kind of reading of an angry young man fighting the system until the system kills him, it's a very linear but very familiar kind of story for me. And so if they're going for that, you know, Christological messages aside, I could see that being a lot more effective. But as Aaron was saying earlier about the poor kind of shepherding of this story, I see it getting away from the heart and soul of that, which is really Luke's character and finding itself confused in a lot of other avenues. But I do see a through line there to his character in a way that makes sense to me, but only because, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very personal reading. Um, I don't know if it's clear that if that was not your life, that it is not told clear enough here. Mm. Yeah. That's I, a, that, yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say that I, I actually thought that the Christological images I thought they were really worked for me in showing that this is ridiculous. Um, mm. That, that this is like, because I think what's kind of essential about, about Christ figures is that they come in and they unite around a purpose and they bring people ahead. And uh, you start to think that's what Luke's doing at the beginning. Like people are kind of coming together behind him. They're having fun. And it just totally breaks down. I mean, even at the end when Dragline, he ditches him. Like, Dragline yeah. ditches him. Like, yeah, we're going to go off together. Yeah. You're kind of like, this is weird. Like, this is going to turn into a buddy movie now or something. This wasn't ever a buddy movie. And you start thinking back, like, Luke has nothing but contempt for all of these people. He hates them. And then finally, he leaves Dragline. And Dragline's like, what? This is weird. I, I think it was really, it made that really a really clear dichotomy that this is not a Christ. This is not like a, a good way. So the to, perspective is almost like the movie fools you into thinking that this is the perspective of Luke. And really it's like the perspective of the prisoners. Yeah. Watching him. Yeah. It's the perspective of the prisoners. And it could be the perspective that Luke has of himself too. Um, but in fact, he, he's not, in fact, he, he's, he's the worst. Aren't we supposed to feel though, ultimately that dragline, Betrays it like he's the Judas figure. Yeah, but even that is it's kind of a weird betrayal, isn't it? I, um, because he betrays him like he's not smart enough to realize like they're going to kill him either way. I think he actually thinks like, oh, no, we're going to make a deal. Right. That, I don't know. Maybe do th- maybe that's wrong. I don't know. I honestly don't know, because, you know, of course, um, a, a false deal was made at the beginning of the movie. Right. Remember when when Dragline uh, witnessed one of the new prisoners said that he would trade jobs with the with the old you know, the the the, the um, established prisoner said he would trade jobs with the new guy and the new guy bought it and then you know ended up back back sassing as they they keep saying yeah yeah um, and nobody said anything and that was very clear that oh that job like didn't exist he just huh. you know bilked you out of some money. And Dragline was like, hey, that's the way these things work, you know? So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he really is that 
naive. I mean, none of them are very intelligent. I, Dragline isn't even literate. Um, not not that that necessarily well, speaks to intelligence. Actually, I, you know, I, I had heard some some interpretations comparing him not to Judas, but to Peter. Like, that's why he's kind oh, of stupid. Like and he's like God's ah. prophet speaking to him in the church. Right. And then, cool. and then at the end, right, he's the guy who gives the gospel of Luke. Right. He's the guy who tells all the prisoners, oh, yeah, he died. He died with a smile on his face. Um, yeah. Right. And just to, to add to that, he he attacks the guy who shoots um, like I don't think that he would have attacked uh, oh, yeah. the the aviator, the no, no eyes, boss, no eyes. Yeah. Um, for uh, for shooting Luke if he had been in on the game the whole time. So right, like so he like, is. He's like, you killed him. Like, why did you kill him? Like, you weren't going to do that. You said you weren't going to kill him. I was going to bring him in. And he also, attacks him, knocks off his glasses, and they get crushed in the car or by and, the car. And just like in it's the Bible with uh, with Peter like hacking off the the soldier's yeah. ear or whatever. So now it's like the same thing happening on one on his Christ's death. Could, not to okay. not to belabor this, but I mean, it could also be yeah. Judas's regret. Fair, um, that's fair. So that casting I mean, that, the glasses like like silver. Right, right. See, that's a, that's where I'm just like, what what am I supposed to? You know, I like the ambiguity on the one hand, but on the other hand, I, I'm just. Um, you like ambiguity when there's when there seems to be a an intention towards that ambiguity, like right, you're driving right. your your image system and your symbols and the intention of the characters together to a, a if or other. And this one, if I'm hearing you correctly, because I, I think I agree, it, it it could be this or it could be that, but it's not yeah. clear that that even the person who made it knew, and that's not that's or not that what you he want. even knew it wasn't that clear. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and yet it yeah. and yet it is, you know, it, it is trafficking in these symbols. So it's clearly trying to make a, a choice. I don't know. I, I like the reading of Peter. I, I think that probably works better. Um, but I think it's also maybe supposed to be Judas too. That you know, the problem is this like tendency on our part, I think, to read it as like this very clear narrative. Like, of course, the guy who comes to him has to be either the Judas or the Peter in order to fit in the like, you know general outline <laughs> that we've been given. So, um, so I don't know, even that kind of allegorical th uh, telling, you know, I, it does, it doesn't really work for me or it doesn't really interest me. I, I, I like, like there's the, like a failure to communicate here. Uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's maybe it. That's maybe it. Yeah. Like, I, I, whatever it is that they're doing, it's clearly had, four different kind of interpretations Very and even different. when there's a moment where you're like well hey it's kind of like what you're saying with this and the person's going nope not nope <laughs> that's not what i was exactly saying. <laughs> um so talking about that failure to communicate and not in like a necessarily meta way but that line that our captain what we got here. says to luke right what 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 sort of role do we think that is playing between the establishment or god talking to luke or his people or the prisoners like there's there's a multiple different ways of saying it, as we've said, uh, in in naming what all the institutions and all the people are standing for. Yeah. What what does it mean in general besides the obvious? The captain saying like, "Okay, dummies, you're not really smart, and that's why you're here." And I'm gonna try and simply say this: Stop running. <laughs> Don't run. Okay. What else does it mean? Aaron, I, did you I feel have like I feel like what we got here is a failure. 
to communicate. With you. <laughs> I'm cutting that. I'm cutting good. that right out. <laughs> yeah, this is good. Well, Aaron, Aaron, you you wanted to ask this question. Did would you like to yeah. listen? Well, yeah, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> just because I want to ask the question doesn't mean I have an answer to it. No, um, <laughs> I, you know, I guess, I guess what I was thinking, um, what really stood out to me, and it's interesting because Vito, when you were talking about um, when you were working with those with those guys, and they were kind of like, you know, quoting Cool Hand Luke, like "Take it off, taking it off, boss," or whatever uh, they were saying. That that part like really really struck out to me sorry, really stuck out to me. The, uh, this idea that like, um, they're kind of announcing their action, like sort of speaking it into the void almost, it kind of, it seems to like imbue the the prisoners with a certain kind of communicative power almost, right? They're not like phrasing their requests as questions. They, they kind of, they sort of state the action that they're going to perform as if they're simply like telling the guard what they're going to do as if they don't require permission. But of course they do. Like, first of all, the inanity of the stuff that they announce, like even the littlest thing, like taking off their glasses needs to be communicated. And then of course the fact that like they can be turned down, like the guard, I think the guard like wordlessly doesn't allow Luke to kind of like go or get close to closer to his mother. Maybe around, around the other side. Around of the, the car other away side from the prison. Yeah, right. He just shakes his head. And then the the guards do respond with their consent, you know. Um, but anyway, this this was interesting to me because then so so we have communicate we have a lot of communication, but um, people not receiving that communication or not rather inviting conversation. Like back sass- backsassing is a bad thing <laughs> repeatedly. There's also like that that guard in the um in the barracks who gives them I, I really like that character and I like that lecture <laughs> at the beginning about how anything they do and they'll spend the night in the box. <laughs> and I, I think it's I think it's Harry Dean Stanton's character who who like goes to ask a question and the guy just like steamrolls him by continuing to so it's <laughs> so it's not about yeah it's not about like communicating or rather maybe that's it maybe maybe it's maybe even on the part of the guards it's not about communication but it seems to me like it's about getting through his his again automated sort of spiel rather than actually having the other person understand and this is even even in the first shot of the movie when he's like unscrewing the heads on the parking meters. That first shot is this like violation, violation, violation yeah. you know, just this like automated so response good. from the parking meter, <laughs> like don't unscrew my head, um, <laughs> and uh, and it's being it's being ignored by by Luke. So so I think that I don't know. I I was meditating on this, like the the difference between communication, communicating your message, and having someone actually receive that message. Um, because you can you can communicate something into the void as they do, uh, but does that actually constitute? Rather, is that actually like a full communication? Does communication require that the other person receive and understand what you're trying to say? And therefore, is all of the communication in the film false? Because we have Paul Newman's character communicating something about himself, which turns out to be false. You know, we have. It seems to me that that uh, that that kind of can be the motto of the whole, the whole film. Nobody is actually maybe communicating or conversing. Everyone has their narrative in their head of what they want to say. Like Dragline wants to say something about Luke, 
And whether it's true or not, that's what he's going to argue is Luke's story, even when Luke tells him that's not his story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sorry, I'm I'm like, I, I feel like I, everything I'm saying is like, is just, I'm throwing all this bullshit out there. I hope. No, <laughs> no, actually, no. I, I, <laughs> I want to I tie it actually a little bit to talking about um, Luke again, you know, because the, the eponymous character, Cool Hand Luke, you guys heard of him? Uh, but talking about <laughs> communication and the way that Luke is is communicating seems to be on a different level than anyone else. And the way that he communicates his rebellion and the way that he communicates who he is as a person, um, I think is really interesting. He He does say things and it's clear the prisoners hear him, but they interpret it in, in wildly different ways, right? So he he's a, he's an earth shaker. They label him that early enough. That's clear enough for anyone to see that he he wants to shake up these systems for whatever reason he has, right? But another thing is like thinking about the egg scene, right? And he communicates out there. He's like, I, I bet I can eat 50 eggs. And the way he speaks that though is with a very simple statement and he uses a language that they get bet, right? And they're like, oh, okay, well, we know we know what this is. It's a bet. So bets need to be wagered on. I don't think you can eat 50 eggs. And then they have this very intense communication back and forth about how that works, but it's in a system that they know how to talk in. Just like with the guards, there's this system of requesting permission for actions and permission being granted. Like each person has a different way of operating within their systems. And those systems don't really seem to cross over very much. And when they do, like when they distract the the sort of the house, the house dad, right? The 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 the, the boss that walks around, <laughs> they distract him with with a porno mag, and that's that division then is broken between the bosses and the prisoners. But it's so that Luke can escape. Like it's only in a in a transgressive kind of way, which is even further exemplified by the fact that they're looking at smut, right? And I think that's a really cool way of talking about communication here is is that it's all running in different lines, like you're saying, like. Some people are almost randomly, they're connecting within their webs and other times it's going away, like between Luke and his mother talking. It's clear she's saying things to Luke and it almost seems like with Paul Paul Newman's great performance in that scene, he he wants to say other things and he's choosing instead to say this thing, a very simple thing, kind of to help his mama feel better. And she's kind of reaching out for a connection. He's, he's kind of granting her that, but they're never eye to eye. They're always... She's looking at him from laying down and yeah. he's standing to the side looking away from her, right? The sight lines are very different. And I, so when he communicates his rebellion, it seems to be with just direct action, right? It's it's either upsetting the system by doing an absurd bet or it's cutting the heads off parking meters or it's making a break for it or it's uh, it's playing up the role of being the the gopher guy. Um, I'm sorry, just what you said just like sparked a lot of a lot of things that I had thought about um, kind of uniting them into one <laughs> so much to say that it, it seems as if if Paul Newman, sorry, Luke and all the prisoners would just do what the system asked. They're here to serve time. They're clearing roadways. They are repaving roads. And that is it. That's all the captain wants of them to do. He has communicated this very effectively. And it's only when when Luke comes in to question that communication that things really go awry. And it's like, it's almost like a little workaday happy machine that's chugging along until he's the wrench that gets thrown in the gears. Right. And and what, what occurs to me when you say that is that Luke could be a really effective rallying point for something positive. I mean, we get a hint of that when he gets them to work really hard, Um, even though it's for the sake of, 
I guess like to further annoy the bosses. Um, That was so familiar. Like I've done (laughs) that exact thing. Like guys, if we do this really, really fast, they're going to be so pissed because they don't have anything for us to do. (laughs) I get to to go sit on my shovel. Yeah. Exactly what I wanted to do when I woke up this morning. (laughs) But that, but that could be, you know, that that could be a uh, discovering there a purpose, a form of dignity, right? Which is pride in your work, and and the ability to like do things well, and then you have more time to rest at the end of the day or something. I mean, maybe this that's like a total pie in the sky idea, or maybe that's like a Shawshank Redemption idea. But definitely but thought of that. Yeah, <laughs> but there's something there's something to that, right? Like something something to deciding like your choice can be okay. This is where I am right now, and I'm going to accept that, and I'm going to make the most of that. And since Luca really has this inherent greatness in him, he has the ability to rally people around this, you know, he's the ability to communicate that yeah. and to to get people to buy into his message. Problem is that he doesn't like them and he has no message. <laughs> so yeah. it all it it's it's a real lost opportunity, I think. Yeah. It's almost like the failure to communicate with Luke is that like to communicate, you do have to have a message. You have to have thoughts. And he doesn't. He has instinct. He really is like, yeah, I I I kind of rhyme with you with the machine idea. He it's funny. He fights the machine, but in some ways he, he just is one. Like his automatic response is rebellion, 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 violation. Yeah. Violation. Just like the violation. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. He spends his whole life fighting machines and he himself, I guess is nothing more than one. Yeah. Which, yeah, I guess points to the tragicness of this, this weird character who can't communicate to anything, can't even communicate with God. And even at the end, when God is trying to communicate back, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't mean anything to him because it doesn't matter. That's what it seems yeah, like. You can feed him any message that you want, and he's just going to poop out rebellion every time. Anything. Just, yeah. like, just like you're shoveling the coal, rebellion. <laughs> yeah. shoveling, shoveling God, rebellion. Oh, shoveling pizza, rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> you like pizza? Fuck pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I hate pizza because God won't talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. We've all been there once, right? Yeah, you know. But so, so if you if you're this sort of self hating, self loathing kind of machine, and I'm not even ascribing that level of self knowledge to Luke, but in in effect, that's kind of what you're getting with endless rebellion. Can that kind of machine or person ever reach a freedom of any kind? Like, is death the only freedom? I I kind of think I kind of think so because it seems that written into the character is only rebellion is only a pushing back. I I will not serve. And so it seems the only way to be free of that is to have no more choice in the matter. Yeah. Well, like he says, either kill me or love me. And he's been loved. That didn't work. Now he just needs to be killed. I think that's the only option. Is, is there any world where I guess there is no world because he, he, he's raised in a, in a family that we're at least we're, given to believe likes him there is no dad but the mom really liked the dad talks about the dad a lot what happened to the dad did he die he left he He, left he ran away he He ran off okay yeah Yeah. still still this is this is the most aggressive case of daddy issues i've ever seen yeah (laughs) Yeah. what one thing that i uh i I don't this wasn't what it was going to be but one thing that i noticed um or that i was thinking about when you guys were talking earlier about I don't know. I don't remember what it was, but when Luke, I was thinking about like Luke uh, coming into like when Luke starts working with Dragline or like he's becomes part of Dragline's crew, 
like he's the guy who gives out the loans. And I was thinking about that, like, huh, that's weird. That's a system that he joined. But then I, I was realizing the way that he decides whether or not to give out a loan is by flipping a coin. Yep. Which is like, that uh, uh, made me think of uh, No Country for Old Men in the first place. And coin flipping is like my favorite thing for a chaotic person to do mm-hmm. because it's the clearest, you know, sign of chaos. It's, it's fair. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, it's a trope that I like. Yeah, but if you, show, um, if you show me a coin flipping chaos agent, um, I'm, I'm already in. I know it's weird. It, yeah. it works. It works because I'm always thinking of Antoine Chigurh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's just like he's such a clear agent of chaos. Like that's what his rebellion is. It's chaos versus order. Right. Like it's it's crazy. It's it's really wild. Um, yeah. What's a greater how, symbol that coin flip of leaving, you know, again, freedom from having to make a choice yourself? You know, leaving yeah, it yeah. up to chance. Yeah. Ultimate cowardice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Really cool hand Luke is just the Joker. Yeah, think, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what we're coming to. Like there's he has uh, he has nothing going on. He just wants every he wants the world to burn. So really I would also does. like to say to say that in those dorm rooms where you would have Cool Hand Luke, the American flag, and Pulp Fiction on the wall, if you went in the bathroom, you'd have the Dark Knight on the back of the door. So <laughs> it's it's the full college boy trifecta. Hey, who knew, who knew they had all of those just in the first poster? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just gotta have one guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on. I'm gonna call a quick sidebar. Um, oh shoot! So sidebar. guys, we've talked about how he ate 50 eggs in an hour. So this got me thinking, what's the world record for eating hard-boiled eggs? Oh, so, man. Good question. Guys, pick a number. What number do you think is the record for eating hard-boiled eggs? In an hour. Is it in an hour or just in general? I'll give you the time after like, the after time? Oh. Uh, it could be the answer. Oh. oh, so we've got to pick number of eggs and also time. Sure. Or if you want to. I mean, go ahead. Yeah, no, we've got two, we've oh, got okay. two things here. Well, you, you got it then, Mike. Run, run with it. I'm going to go with... Uh, 32 in an hour. That's that's 32. Okay. 32 in an hour. A- Aaron, do you have a guess? Oh, those are those are some dense. That's a dense food, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's so grainy, you know, yeah. when you bite into it. Yeah. I w- I'm going to say. Okay. I think they do train. I don't know how, but like the yeah. hot dog eating contest. Yeah. They, I, it's always a small dude. They're amazing. <laughs> yeah. Dude. Yeah. It's always like a small Never mind. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. I'll go big. I'm going to say 60 in an hour. All right. Dang. All right. One a minute. Like swallow quick. I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to extend the time. I'm going to say over a three hour period, 80 eggs. 80 eggs over three hours. Okay. Three hours. So in 2003, Sonia, the black widow, Thomas. (gasps) Good for her. Ate 65 in six minutes and 40 seconds. Holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> and, and this record was what? broken. This record what? was broken in 2013 by Joey Chestnut, who devoured 141 eggs in eight minutes. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> but why? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Imagine everything, everything that Luke goes through in one hour condensed to eight minutes and three times that. That's what Joey Chestnut did. So, so there's no chewing. You're just shotgunning eggs. Yes. 
Yeah. Again, again, using again using like a thirty rock, like Liz Lemon unhinging her jaw and shotgunning that pizza. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Why? I that is true. They are, they are the true agents of chaos in the world. <laughs> oh yeah, like those who eat a hundred. How many was it? A hundred? A hundred and forty-one. I've so many. What? what? Oh my like, god! I think I think Joey Chestnut has a lot of records to his name. I yeah, I'm I not know going that guy. To go down that rabbit hole, but yeah, <laughs> he, he's done a he's eaten lots of things, and he's pretty I, I, skinny. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Joey, Joey Chestnut is, is a very famous fast food eater. I shouldn't have I should have thought of that. Man, eighty eggs in three hours. He's like, what's taking you so long? Just yeah. just eat them. <laughs> you even, have you eaten before? Yeah. You know what it is. Imagine him as like a little kid. Just like whoa, done. <laughs> Where'd the oh. food go? I kind you of find. Better. I don't. I don't know if this is stupid, but I kind of find competitive eating to be like morally wrong <laughs> and th- that just makes me so sad like i'm not one of those people who's like oh if i don't eat this on my plate then someone in a third world country is gonna go hungry it's just like yeah. it's it's so gross like it's funny because even like in cool hand luke is disgusting but for a completely different reason like He's like, oh, I'm just looking for something to do or whatever. And they're in prison, so it doesn't matter. But if your name is Joey Chestnut and you're just walking around in the free world and this is what you decide to do to food. Smashing records, man. Smashing records left and right. How many hot dogs you got? I'll eat them all. Yeah. And (laughs) probably these people are like, I'm an athlete, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Stretch the stomach. (laughs) Man, that's – I mean, I guess like if – you know, everyone has to have something, right? Like, I don't know if that's the thing you have to have. But it just like by, by the numbers, by, by the law of statistics. There's going to be, <laughs> there's there's gonna gonna be, be a one person. There's got to be a couple. Yeah. Or just like my thing is food. Like I eat a lot of it fast. Food. You know, that's that's it. It's my thing. I, I don't I, agree with it. I'm not a big fan <laughs> of it. But you know what? They're living their life. They're, they're living their they're life. They're proud of themselves. You know, they probably got like. There's like a sheep murderer out there. And he's like, it's just my thing. I just murder sheep. I'm really good at murdering sheep. I don't know what to tell you. By that logic, Mike. You know, I'm not going to say that's not true just because you said something that would be true if my thing was true. I love I, this. Is, this is the typical form of uh, argumentation. Is, with uh, it's very yeah. good at it. I'm yeah. usually right. Well, you can't not, even argue right. against that because you weren't even. Sp- sp- shit. You weren't even specific. <laughs> <laughs> and you just said things. I don't know what things you're talking about anymore things well thank you go call an end to your sidebar if that's the all right i'm calling into my sidebar then 141 eggs eight minutes wow disgusting (laughs) well if we got nothing else to talk actually i should ask that as a question do we have anything else that anyone wanted to bring up no i think you no yeah i think i'm pretty cool with where we've left things off my hands my hands they're fine you know they're not cool but they're fine they're fine they're not sweaty yeah that's good. What do you think, Aaron? I think I think I think we did. I I have I have one more. I guess I have one more like minor question. Okay, sure. You know, I, is George is did George Kennedy in his Academy Award winning performance? Was this a good performance, guys? That's a good question. I because I kind of don't know about that. So so he's up against so we we said John Cassavetes in The Dirty Dozen, which he's also in, right? Amazing performance. We have Gene Hackman in Bonnie and Clyde and Michael J. Pollard in Bonnie and Clyde. Both great. And Cecil Calloway Calloway in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is one I have not seen. 
Um, uh, that didn't age well, uh, but but good performances in it. Yeah. Okay, I'll I'll take you very nuanced. At your word there. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm a little annoyed by the lack of Sidney Poitier here for In the Heat of the Night. Um, but he he was was he not nominated for for main actor? Nope, that mm-hmm. went to Rod Steiger, who won. Oh, that's right. That I remember this. Yes, yeah, yeah. that was not good. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't really. And then Spencer Tracy has a posthumous nomination, also for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Right. Uh, I don't. It's it's effective. I think it works. I think there's a little bit too much nobility and a little bit too much stupidity at different times. Like it's a very noble thing of him when Luke, when he kind of gets the the thing, like Luke's not going to stop fighting and he's mad at Luke for shattering his daydream about the girl watching the car. And so that's why he wants to fight him. And he does fight him and he beats him quite handily and he picks him up. Right. And he sets him very gently down on the ground and is like, all right, well, we're, we're good. And Luke, of course, can't stop hitting him, can't stop fighting. And he has this moment where he's like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And he gets up and Luke even hits him a couple times in the back and he still leaves. I don't know if that's supposed to be like a noble ape thing to do, because then in the end, he seems to have no self-awareness of where he and Luke's relationship is because he's there continually calling out, like ending salutations at Luke's back. Like, all right, Luke, see you out there. It's probably best we we get away from each other. I don't know if Mm -hmm. you know this, but I really love you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think I think he, unless you were offer a counterpoint, I would say he does a very good job with what he has, but I don't know if what he has is is the highest of quality. Yeah, I like that distinction that you make between those two registers in which he operates and how kind of contradictory they are. Sometimes he's very restrained, so so it makes the over the top parts even more over the top, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it, maybe it's a difficult role to do well, um, but I I don't know. Just the the subtlety, like that that Joe Van Fleet scene, the subtlety in that, I just I think it's on another level than the rest of the film. You know, I'm with you guys in loving that scene, and and the the comparison with George Kennedy, I think uh, you know, doesn't make good old GK look very good. Yeah, and he is so good in so many other things. Yeah, um, yeah. And this is the only mm-hmm. one he's nominated for. Or, or wins, actually, either. Nominated and won one time. Really? Wow. This is it? Yep, this is it. Yeah. He, it's hard to hard to see his face without thinking also of just, like, the ogling of the girl in the yeah. in the scene, which is, like, horrible. Like, it, it's just an awful scene yeah, to watch. Really. And, like, it's not it's not funny. Like, their faces aren't funny. It's just ugly. No, they look like animals. They're in the yeah. dirt. And I don't and think it's, it's like supposed to be funny. It's like what they're kind of trying to do. Yeah. But like we're talking about in a movie, it's of, just of like subtle it's imagery. over the top. It's, <laughs> like it's here total, you go, yeah. and it's it's so over the top, and like it's what he was given. But yeah, it's hard to be like, yeah, that's the best. The one, that's the best supporting actor. The one funny bit is when he does uh, put the glasses on. Oh yeah, and then takes them off again. Yeah, I thought that was actually kind of funny. <laughs> <That was> funny. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I'm not a huge. Different. I'm not a huge fan of him. Like he's just he comes across as kind of a creep and that I don't really like him. And like, I'm not really sure what his whole character is the entire movie. It's like, you're sort of a leader, but you sort of just give it up for Luke. And then you just follow him around and you're completely loyal to him. And you love smut. That's it. Yeah. That that's his he's character. A, he's an ape. Yeah. He's, he's just a, he's a, he's a base man. Right. Yeah. That's not and the, he, sort I, mean, of, I mean, it's a bit, I don't know. I feel like that's a little, a little much. Stick, I don't know. stick up for the Academy I, Award winner. Mike. I, I'm going to stick, stick up, up for him. I mean, I think that it's a really interesting 
like dynamic between him and uh, uh, and Luke um, because he's the leader, and then Luke breaks the the structure, the social structure that he's leading. And this is what happens when this agent of chaos who has no desire to like lead anyone on, he breaks it. And like these people are broken. He leaves them broken behind him. And they're just like the wreckage. I think there's a point to that. Um, yeah. It's not just like, oh, I, I don't, I don't know. It was just a question of performance. I, I thought he did that part of the performance. Well, it's just that like they have him be incredibly over the top and stupid. And, and I guess play that ape, that apish didn't character didn't Roger Ebert say he to. he the character is slack jawed? <laughs> yeah. Do yeah. I, I wonder if there's a I don't know, did anyone else pick up on some kind of homoerotic element with yeah. Luke? Yeah. Which maybe right. explains the over the top Lucille thing as some kind of I don't know, compensation. I, I don't know. I think that's usually inherent in a lot of these of these prison movies, right? That that filial yeah. love sort of crosses over and transcend into something different. Right. Um, yeah. And in Shawshank Redemption, you see, you know, something much more explicit that happens in these sorts of scenarios. And in this movie, it's usually in the the sweaty work, the ogling of women, and then the beating each other up, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's how it comes out here. Mm-hmm. But I think there's usually in prison movies, there is that, that subtext of do they hate each other or do they love each other? Yeah. All right. Well, usually we end our show with a final question. Is this a dad movie? And we're going to circle also to Jesse's. Would he show this to his kids and when? Um, I guess I'll, I think I'll start that for me, it's a dad movie, but mostly because of that personal connection that I felt with Luke and seeing this seeing this over the years since I was a teenager and into being a, a married adult man who doesn't have these sorts of problems anymore. It was It's important for me to have this journey in a movie. And if I show it to my kids, it's like I said before, I just, it's just going to be late. It's going to be late and we're going to talk about it. And it's going to look something like this, you know, where mm-hmm. there's a lot of picking apart and questioning and really trying to get at the heart of what's happening. It's not a full throated recommendation whatsoever from me. What do you think, Jesse? Since, since you need to answer your question. <laughs> I guess I do. Uh, I don't know. I think the more I've heard Aaron talk tonight, the more, the more I'm thinking that maybe this is just a movie of pure chaos. And this maybe may not this may not be something I just want to sit down and show my kids. I think there's lots of really cool moments and prison moments that w- that we talked about. But then again, like I can also find those in like Shawshank or Oh Brother Where Art Thou or even Holes. So in in a lot of ways, like there are some other like replacement movies that I would rather show instead of this one. So I, I may even go so far as to say I don't think this is a dad movie. And I'm not sure if I really want to show this to my kids or care about showing it to them. Well said. I, so I, I definitely, I'm going to double down and say, I do want to show it to my kids in their teenage years. Even after this conversation, I wasn't, I wasn't double down. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. Yes. I'm doubling down. I wasn't sure I was going to, but I'm going to, um, I don't, I do not think it's a dad movie though. Mm -hmm. And for two reasons. And one of the reasons is one we've talked about before. Like, it's a classic. Like this is a classic movie. And Are you doing this right again? Yeah, I think I think that that's <laughs> important. And like it's not. This isn't just you know something. This isn't something that it's like oh you know dad thinks this is awesome. It's like no. This is a this is a movie that I I do think that it's a it's a great movie. Um, it's one that will go down in history as something that people. Yeah, I mean it has, has gone down. It has gone down in history and will continue to go down in history as something 
to be seen, like on the checklist. It's problematic in a lot of ways. It's uh, the overall message is confused, uh, if not incomplete. But I think it's it's definitely got a ton of value, just as you know, a piece of like cultural detritus, right? Like <laughs> you got you got to see it. Like it's it's there. You got to see it. Everyone else has. Um, but then also, I think that the the message is very interesting. The, the very fact of its lack of clarity is interesting. So I, I want to, I'm very excited to, to see it with them, but also doing what you, what you said, you know, sitting down and talking to them about it. The second reason I, I, I guess I, I had two reasons. The second reason I, I didn't think it was really dad movies because it's very uncomfortable. I'm not going to like just turn this on to chill out with it. You know, I'm like, this is something that you watch with intention, um, a ton of intention. And it's not something that makes me feel good it's not something that I think all of the ideas espouse, whatever they are, like I agree with. So yeah, both those reasons. It's too classic and also too confusing <laughs> to, to, to sum it up. I, I'm just going to go on record and say I never agree with the, the too classic reasoning. I, I think there are way too many, way too many dad movies that are just too classic. Um, yeah, there's, like, some, there's some. The, the Godfather, there's you. The Godfather yeah. is a dad movie always will be a classic and will always be a classic at the same time. Um, yeah. yeah. You, you can't just do this for every movie that came out before 1970. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, we've only done like three. Okay. And you've done it for three. <laughs> okay. Sure. They've been really big ones. So, so, so far you're batting 1000. All right. All right. Hey, someone has to, you know, no one has to do something. Um, Aaron, do you feel yes. equipped to, to talk about whether or not this is a dad movie? I mean, like, do you know what that means? We've been, we've been figuring we it know. out. <laughs> You know, okay. So on on one level, far be it from me to say what is a dead movie and what isn't. Um, you're a guest. Come on, you're, you're a guest. guest. Like we're, you're here because well, it's well, it's within okay. your wheelhouse. I'll, I'll you, say. You I'll say about it in terms yeah. of like your own dad. Like, would you watch it? Sure, from? sure. Yeah. So I'd, I'd I'd answer this on two levels. I'd say on the one hand, it's a, I think it's an obvious dad movie because it has Paul Newman. It's about a bunch of guys. Some interesting, cool things happen that are violent, and it's. It, it is enjoyable in a way, um, and it involves like interactions with men. You know, okay, men. so yeah. that's men, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, I think that I see this uh, as a movie that would annoy a lot of dads, maybe, or rub, rub them kind of the wrong way, because it seems to me to go against maybe what the the that my dad and father figures in my life have had to do which is oftentimes um, like, like to me, what being a dad often is, is to find a way to work within the system and to even like sacrifice yourself for the sake of a larger system uh, for the benefit of your family. Right. Um, that's like a beautiful, beautiful thing that a dad does. And so I could see dads uh, bristling at this movie. I actually don't know what what my dad thinks about this movie. I wanted to ask him before we recorded uh just to get his opinion and I didn't I I didn't have the chance to. Um but my grandfather I know did not like this movie for this reason. Like <laughs> Oh wow. Um yeah, so you know, I think um a more clear-cut case of a great dad movie is when I think of like prison escaping is obviously like, you know, the great escape and that this is kind of like the anti-cool hand Luke like 
men with a plan doing the right thing. Yeah. So uh, not to not to put them at odds. They're very different films. But um, yeah. Very yeah. nice. I yeah, I actually rhyme with you on a lot of things like this should be a dad movie, like just on the surface. Like there's so much like like I all right as a man, I just get like a lot of enjoyment. I'm seeing like a bunch of dudes all together, all laughing and playing poker. Like I just, I just respond to that. And I did working on a chain gang. It's ninety percent of yes. the appeal of Ocean's Eleven. Like, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, and and it's all here. It's all here. It's all that. Uh, like this should be a dad movie, and for some reason, it just it just becomes too like weighty and conscious of itself. Almost, I don't know. It it stops feeling like a dad movie for me at a certain point. It stops. It, it feels it stops like feeling a summer camp. Yeah. It, it feels like a summer camp, like halfway, like for half of it, but like interspersed with feeling like this is the worst thing ever. Yeah, like this is horrible. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that about does it for us. This was a really fun episode. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank you guys again for having me. This is really, really fun. Good. Well, we're gonna have to do it again at some point. Yeah. But this, uh. Yeah, it was, it was a real joy. We want you back. And this kind of closes our, as as a series, this closes our Misfits and Outcasts. Yeah. We're done. Um, it's all out. And we're going to be moving on to a new kind of series coming up, maybe covering a franchise. Maybe. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. Hint. And I'm only <laughs> saying hint because I don't really know the calendar very well, so I can't tell you what's next. But we'll definitely be announcing it somewhere. Um, but for all of us here at Not Your Father's Movies, I'm Vito. I'm Mike. I'm Jesse. I'm Aaron. Good night.